Today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur. Chapter 10. The next several years of high school passed uneventfully. Because I was spending weekends with my mother, we became closer. During my 17th year, however, I decided to quit school, get a job, and live on my own. My entrance into the working world was a rude awakening. I didn't even know what most of the one ads meant. Auditor, copywriter, accounts receivable, key punch operator were all foreign words to me. Every day, I hit the pavement with my best office-looking clothes on and a pair of high-heeled torture shoes. Every day, I came home more frustrated than the day before. I didn't know how to do anything, had no experience, and was black to boot. Finally, I paid some employment agency one or two weeks salary for the privilege of getting me on one of those dingy, boring, $95 a week jobs. I was one of those slaves where you pay a fifth of your salary for taxes, some more for social security, another $5 a month for union dues, and the rest was not even enough to die on. It seemed that the whole world was made up of things I couldn't afford. After I paid the rent on my furnished room, spent car fare, and bought food, I had just enough money to buy an air sandwich. The only saving grace was that I didn't have too much time to hang out. I was going to night school, so I would leave my boring job and go to boring night school to diagram sentences, memorize garbage, and prepare for a high school diploma that meant nothing in the job market. My life was being spent pushing around meaningless papers that had nothing to do with living. I wasn't doing anything positive. I wasn't making anything, creating anything, or contributing to anything. After a while, I wanted to tell them to take their papers and their job and shove it. But at first, I wasn't like that. After weeks of looking for a job, I was grateful just to have one. I didn't think about low pay, indecent working conditions, no medical benefits, only one week vacation. I was just happy to be working. I identified with the job and talked about our company and told people what we manufactured. I wasn't making two cents over lunch money and talked like I owned the place. I remember once I was working at some joint where they made trailers. I had a job pushing papers. I told one of my aunt's friends that she should buy one of those trailers if she ever wanted one. She looked at me like I was crazy. Why, she asked. Are they going to give me a discount? I felt so stupid. It hit me. They wouldn't even give me a discount and I was working there. The longer I worked at those places, the shorter my patience got. 
half the time, I didn't even want to hear the rinky-dink stuff they talked about at the office. I got sick of listening to gossip about the bosses and this and that and who was messing with who. After a while, I stayed pretty much to myself. And then, when I wasn't busy, I would stick a book between some pages and read. That was back in the mid-60s and papers were filled with stories about riots. At the time, I really didn't know what to think about the riots. The only thing I can remember thinking was that I wanted to see the rioters win. In the office, there was a group of secretaries who worked for the president or the vice presidents. They looked down on those of us who worked in the general office and treated us like we were nothing. One day, I was in the bathroom and one secretary came in. She was spraying hairspray on a puffed up French roll that was so hard, it looked like it had been baked on. She began talking about this and that. I was surprised because she never talked to me. Then she started about the riots. What a shame it was that those people were so stupid and dumb for rioting because they were just tearing up their own neighborhoods and burning down their own houses. I didn't say anything. She prodded. I said, isn't it a shame? Isn't it? I didn't know what to say. It was true that black people were burning down black neighborhoods, but I didn't know how to deal with the question and she kept insisting. Finally, I said yes and walked out. I was disgusted with myself. I hadn't wanted to agree with her, but I didn't know what else to say. I spent half the night thinking until I felt I had the answer. A few days later, the subject came up again. This time, the whole bunch of front office secretaries who were friendly with the office manager came into the general office. Before they had a chance to get any words out after riot, I was on their case. What do you mean they're burning down their houses? They don't own those houses. They don't own those stores. I'm glad they burned down those stores because those stores were robbing them in the first place. They stood with their mouths open. After that, the office manager went out of her way to hassle me. Miscellaneous whites began to ask my opinion about the riots and I made sure they weren't disappointed. I knew it wouldn't be long before they fi- before they fired me. The only reason I didn't quit was that I had nowhere to go and nothing else lined up. When I was finally fired, I was relieved. Because my friend Bonnie and I read a lot of fiction and poetry, we thought we were intellectuals. Neither of us had finished high school, but we used to go to this place on Broadway called the West End, dressed in what we believed to be our scholastic finery. It was one of those real college-type places with pastrami sandwiches and pitchers of dark beer. 
We sat around trying to look deep until someone sat down and talked to us. After a while, we made friends with some African students who were studying at Columbia. I loved to listen to the Africans. They were intense, serious, and had so much dignity. I was introduced to African customs and they spent hours explaining the various aspects of their cultures. Bonnie asked about their marriage ceremonies because she was dying to get married. I asked about the food because I loved it. Curried chicken, ground nut stew, which was chicken and peanut sauce, and cornbread that you cook over the stove. You would break off a little piece, roll it into a ball, dip your thumb into the middle and make a spoon that you would fill with gravy and eat. It really made me think about how bad they've done us. We know everything about spaghetti and egg rolls and crepe Suzette, but we don't know the first thing about our own food. When I was a little kid, if you had asked me what Africans ate, I would have answered people. One day, Vietnam came up. It was around 1964 and the movement against the war had not yet blown up in full force. Someone asked me what I thought. I didn't have the faintest idea. Back then, the only thing I read in the papers was the headlines, crime stories, comics, or the horoscope. I said, it's all right, I guess. All of a sudden, there was complete silence. Would you mind explaining, sister, what you mean by it's all right, I guess? The brother's voice was mocking. I said something like, you know, the war they're fighting over there, we're fighting over there, you know, for democracy. It was clear from the expressions around me that I had said the wrong thing. The brother I had come with looked like he wanted to crawl under the floor. Who's fighting for democracy? Somebody asked. We are the United States. And then as an afterthought, I added, you know, they're over there fighting communism, fighting for democracy. The brother held his head in his hands as if he had a headache. I knew I had said something wrong, but I couldn't figure out what. Thinking I had failed to state my case strongly enough, I continued repeating everything I had heard on television, babbling which only made matters worse. When I finished, the brother asked me if I knew anything about the history of Vietnam. I didn't. He told me. He explained French colonization, exploitation, brutalization, the starvation and illiteracy, the long fight waged and won in the North, and the U.S. involvement in propping up a phony government after the French got their butts kicked. The brother was talking about names, places, and events, just like he was from Vietnam or something. I sat there with my mouth hanging open. He knew all this stuff, and he wasn't even studying history. I couldn't believe that this African who didn't even live in the U.S. or in Asia could know more than me who had friends and neighbors who were fighting over there. Then he defined the United States government's role, that it was fighting for money, 
to defend the interests of the United States corporations and to establish military bases. I didn't know whether to believe him or not. I had never heard of such a thing. What about democracy, I asked him. Don't you believe in democracy? Yes, he said. But the government the United States was supporting was not a democracy, but a bloodthirsty dictatorship. He started running all kinds of names and dates on me, and there was no way I could respond. There he was, talking about the United States government just like somebody would talk about a criminal. I just couldn't relate to it, but my mind was blown. Despite that, I continued saying the first thing that came into my head, that the U.S. was fighting communists because they wanted to take over everything. When someone asked me what communism was, I opened my mouth to answer, then realized I didn't have the faintest idea. My image of a communist came from a cartoon. It was a spy with a black trench coat and a black hat pulled down over his face, slinking around corners. In school, we were taught that communists worked in salt mines, that they weren't free, that everybody wore the same clothes and that no one owned anything. The Africans rolled with laughter. I felt like a bona fide clown. One of them explained that communism was a political economic system, but I wasn't listening. I was just digging on myself. I had been hoping and hollering about something that I didn't even understand. I knew I didn't know what the hell communism was, and yet I'd been dead set against it. Just like when you're a little kid and they get you to believe in the boogeyman. You don't know what the hell the boogeyman is, but you hate him and you're scared of him. I never forgot that day. We're taught at such an early age to be against the communists, yet most of us don't have the faintest idea what communism is. Only a fool lets somebody else tell him who his enemy is. I started remembering all the stupid stuff people told me when I was little. Don't trust West Indians because they'll stab you in the back. Don't trust Africans because they think they are better than we are. Don't hang out with Puerto Ricans because they all stick together and will gang up on you. I had learned through experience that they were all lies told by stupid people, but I never thought I could be so easily tricked into being against something I didn't understand. It's got to be one of the most basic principles of living. Always decide who your enemies are for yourself and never let your enemies choose your enemies for you. After that, I began to read about what was happening in Vietnam. What the Africans had said was true. There were also articles about the United States Army in Vietnam, their involvement in torture and forcing Vietnamese women to sell their bodies just to survive. I was so confused. It just didn't make any sense to me. 
Our government couldn't do anything that bad, I told Bonnie. There had to be some other information. I couldn't even understand what we were doing there in the first place. Some kind of treaty, they said. But it didn't make any sense. I got so disgusted at one point that I said I wasn't going to read the news anymore. Ignorance is bliss, Bonnie said. The hell it is, I answered. I damn sure didn't want to be as ignorant as I had been. When you don't know what's going on in the world, you're at a definite disadvantage. I decided I'd keep trying to follow what was happening, but I still couldn't believe the United States was doing all the foul things I was reading in the newspapers. What do you mean you don't believe it? Bonnie asked. Just take a look at what they're doing to you. The difference between the Africans and the other friends I hung out with that summer was startling. I remember one day at the beach, everybody was hee-hee happy. It's party time. A multicolored umbrella stands defiantly against the breeze. Blankets and silly-looking beach towels color the beach, along with soda cans and bottles of Bacardi and Johnny Walker Black. Healthy-looking black men wearing turned-down sailor hats and college sweatshirts with cut-off sleeves, lug ice chests, and other stuff back and forth. An improvised outdoor sound system has been hooked up, and Martha and the Vandellas are wailing in the background. I am insisting on reading James Baldwin, even though the wind keeps flapping the pages. Anguished voices scream and moan from the pages. Compressed ghettos threaten to explode. Poverty and fire and brimstone boil over into a deadly stew, but... The beautiful people refuse to let me read in peace. My girlfriend has insisted on fixing me up with Mr. Wonderful, who turns out to be an egomaniac, decked out in monogrammed swimming trunks, a matching terry cloth robe, and a monogrammed towel to boot. Mr. Wonderful consents to grace me with his presence. His looks and manner tell me that I should be grateful because he is definitely what's happening. His ride is a red MG convertible. His crib is in Esplanade Gardens and his gig is an assistant manager for some bank downtown. He is cool from his reel-to-reel tape deck to his color TV right down to his shaggy bachelor rug which he leeringly tells me about. He drinks Remy Martin Cognac and Harvey's Bristol Cream, uses a cologne I can't pronounce, and I wait expectantly for him to tell me his brand of toothpaste. He goes on and on about his trinkets and status symbols. Look at this monogram motherfucker, I think to myself. He is smug. <clears throat> and insinuating a black version of bachelor knows best or some such thing i want to go back to james baldwin but i am surrounded by a group of people that talk too loud looking and thinking somewhat like mr wonderful they're talking about carmen gears porsches Corvettes and other cars that are deemed in. 
the conversation drifts on to co-ops and high-rise apartment complexes. A young man who has mentioned more than once that he is an accountant tells us the benefits of buying property on the island. An insurance salesman says that he sells insurance out on the island and pulls some business cards out of a little silver-colored case which he just happens to have handy in his beach bag. A red-headed school teacher who has eyes for the accountant says that she has always wanted a house on the island with a big kitchen. <clears throat> After talk about the island has exhausted itself, the conversation turns to places to go. French and Mexican restaurants are definitely in, with a restaurant that sells 50 different kinds of crepes winning hands down. One of the men who is a poverty pimp says that he has moved his offices to the Red Rooster Bar and Restaurant. Somebody laughingly asks if he isn't afraid to go out into Harlem with all them niggas. Everybody has some favorite restaurant on top of some building downtown. They don't talk about the food, just the scenery. Mr. Wonderful says he has a Playboy key and often eats at the Playboy Club. I smile uneasily, feeling out of place. All this talk is giving me a headache. Some fraternity brothers invite me to a dance. One tells me that I look like a Delta girl. How does a Delta girl look, I ask. Just like you in a swimsuit, Mr. Wonderful glares at them. I am picking up snatches of conversation from all around me. Talks of grants, poverty programs, and democratic politics, talk of the NFL and the football season, talk of Bergdorf Goodman, Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue, about speedboats and cruisers which nobody owns but everybody wants to. Whiskey flows like water and the speedboats turn into yachts. Everybody is just crazy about the islands, Jamaica, Bermuda, Nassau, Everybody is so chic. I'm so tired of hearing about it that I want to send them somewhere by way of foot. Mine. It's a disgrace. Social workers talk about their clients like dogs. Teachers who don't like to teach. A probation officer complaining about how dangerous his job is. A bunch of money worshippers putting on a front for each other. Somebody asks me if I have my thing together, which thing I want to know. I take a walk up to the house to get away from it all. Some women are in the bathroom smoking reefer and blowing their hair dry. I go fishing in my bag for some aspirin. Where'd you buy your suit? One asks me. I don't want to say Klein's, but I say it anyway. They have some nice things sometimes, she says, without conviction, dismissing me as a bargain basement case. They go back to talking about people and hair going back. They're putting on makeup to look like black Barbie dolls on the beach. I go back outside feeling like I'm from another planet. I feel lonely and serious. Something has been happening to me. A change that has been a long time coming. I want to be real. Am I the only bad-doing, hand-to-mouth, barely-making-it black woman there? 
The struggle I've been going through and the struggle I've been seeing is too hard to lie about and I don't want to even try. I want to help free the ghetto, not run away from it, leaving my people behind. I don't want to style and profile in front of nobody. I want somebody I can relate to and talk about serious shit with. The party is a lost cause. I get to my beach towel and my book and ease on down the beach a little piece. Looking out at the ocean, I wonder how many of our people lie buried there, slaves of another era. I'm not quite sure what freedom is, but I know damn well what it ain't. How have we gotten so silly, I wonder. I get back off into James Baldwin. I don't give a damn if Sag Harbor sags into oblivion. Me and James Baldwin are communicating. His fiction is more real than this reality. Patience was zero. I didn't want to wait for something to happen. I was into living and living for now. I was hungry, starving for life, but at the same time, I was growing more and more cynical every day. I wanted to go everywhere, do everything, and be everything all at the same time. I wanted to experience everything, know how everything felt. I had many zigzag, conflicting ideas rolling around in my head at the same time. One day, I was happy just to be alive and young and moving. The next day, I felt like the world was coming to an end. Everything in my life was jagged, sharp, unfinished edges. Nothing happened calmly. Nothing was like I had thought it would be when I was little. My friends were dying from OD and going into the army. My girlfriends had babies and were looking and sounding old. Nice old men sitting in the park weren't nice old men at all, but were busy masturbating under their newspapers. I got so I didn't believe in nothing, anything, It seemed that everybody was in some kind of bag. The dope bag. The whiskey brown paper bag. The Jesus bag. The love bag. The sex bag. The make it bag. And none of those bags were doing anybody any good. I was looking for my own bag, but the pickings were slim. I kept on looking nevertheless, running and moving and hanging out until I was running myself ragged. One day, I'd be downtown, hanging out with my hippie blippy, black hippie friends. The next night, I'd be uptown, hanging out with the hustlers, but nothing seemed like it was for real, you know? The same dudes who would be talking slick and sniffing coke out of $50 bills one day would be scrounging and begging for a loan the next. Even the most successful hustlers seem to be nothing but flunkies and potential fall guys for the mafia. My friends from downtown weren't much better. At best, most of them were professional escape artists into escaping the problems of the black community or those of the white community. Some of them tried to escape through drugs, 
tripping over worlds that didn't exist on some kind of inner space odyssey, but in their case, the drugs were usually not entirely self-destructive, although I know at least one who zoomed dead out of this world and didn't come back. Through my hippie blippy friends, I got turned on to a lot of things though. I got into poets like Allen Ginsberg, Sylvia Plath, Ferlinghetti, all kinds of novelists, music, foods, etc. I didn't relate to everything, but I checked it out. My horizons got a whole lot broader. My growing impatience with petty bourgeois upward bound Negroes came to a head when I went to work with a black employment agency. Evelyn had gotten me a job there as a typist. The agency was located in Rockefeller Center in the same building with Johnson Publications, the publishers of Ebony and Jet Magazine. I was happy as hell to get the job since I was tired of working for white people. The people in the office were nice and the atmosphere was completely lacking in tension. The boss was decent enough and I had a pretty good relationship with him and his secretary under whom I worked. At first, I was excited, glad to be around so many black people who seemed to be doing so good. Everybody was into making it, moving up the ladder. Black men and women with long lists of degrees and briefcases were in and out of the place. They were sharp, dressed to a T and talking about junior executive training programs, poverty programs, etc. Some of them talked about those companies as if they were going to be the president of the board of directors in five years. Once in a while, I went to lunch with a young man who worked at Johnson Publications, but we always got into arguments, especially about Ebony Magazine. Half the time in the fashion section, they would have these elaborate evening gowns that cost thousands of dollars. When I asked him, what black people could afford to buy them and whether they were going to wear them to the corner bar, he got insulted. He was one of those black people who think that you are free if you can go in a store and buy expensive things. I told him that the only black woman who could afford those dresses was Johnson's wife and he got even more insulted. He told me that everything was changing. Everything was so much better. I said that if things were so much better, how come every time a black person got a good job or was a manager or something, it was news and was printed in ebony? Our relationship ended abruptly when he accused me of always trying to bring black people down and make it seem like we don't have nothing. I ended the matter by cursing him out and that was that. These black people went around acting as if there was no such thing as prejudice and that all you had to do was study and you could be president of the world. At the agency, we were working hard for an equal opportunity conference. The idea was to have black college graduates from all over the country participate in interviews with representatives from the major corporations in America. Almost all of the big corporations were involved, and the graduates paid a substantial fee. Plus, 
transportation, and hotel fees to participate in the conference. It worked like this. Students made out resumes, and the corporate personnel officers decided which applicants they wanted to see. It was a big, plush affair in a major New York hotel with the penthouse suite and quite a few lower floors rented out to the conference. I just knew that hundreds of these young, qualified black people were going to get jobs. I was proud to have helped bring the conference about. It lasted a few days, and by the time it was over, I was ready to go somewhere and have a good cry. Some of those black graduates had spent hundreds of dollars to come to the conference and didn't have one interview. The only graduates the corporations even wanted to see were math, science, engineering, and business majors. Some corporations only wanted to interview graduates in very specialized categories like petroleum engineering or geological engineering. Since most had majored in subjects like English, history, sociology, etc., they were out of the running from the jump. I was shocked and upset. After the conference, I went out with one of the black executives I had met in the agency. I don't understand it, I kept telling him. Why would these companies pay all that money to participate in the conference if they aren't really interested in hiring anybody? It doesn't make any sense. It makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Huh? I don't understand. Listen, he went on. The government says that in order for those companies to keep their contracts, they have to at least make an effort to look for qualified black personnel. The law doesn't say they have to hire anybody. The law says they've only got to look. I was furious. They had used poor, dumb me, just like they use a drug dealer to conspire against his own people. I was part of the plot, and I didn't even know it. There were some blacks who got jobs, but mainly the thing was a sham to make things look good on paper. My friend and I got stupidly drunk, singing oldies by the Shirelles on Lexington Avenue, he telling me about what bastards the bosses were and about the trials and treacheries of the Democratic Party machine and telling me how I was going to get another job as a go-go dancer in the ladies' room. About a week later, I made up a resume, described myself as a college graduate, and was hired as a marketing assistant. I didn't believe in anything, and I wasn't going to allow anyone's rules but my own. And I wasn't going to follow anyone's rules but my own. (laughs) I got fired from that job a couple of weeks later, got another college job, and got fired from that too. I didn't care. I was going to deal with them just like they dealt with us. One time I got a job as a bookkeeper. I didn't know the first thing about it, but after I got the job, I bought a couple of bookkeeping made easy books And when I didn't understand something, I told them that we used a different system at the last place I worked. The job involved a lot of cash, and I had to be bonded. 
When you get bonded, they do a background check on you. The job wasn't too bad and the boss was cool. It was an excellent way to learn bookkeeping and the insurance business. I knew they would fire me as soon as the report came in, but I didn't care. One day, my boss threw a detective's report on my desk. It had my name on it. I swallowed hard. Knowing it was my last day, the more I read it, the more surprised I became. The report verified everything I had said. Subject attended such and such high school. Subject graduated from such and such college. Subject worked at such and such places. They even reported that I lived on a quiet, tree-lined street and that they had talked to my neighbors and learned that I was a nice person. I cracked up all the way home. Everything is a lie in America, and the thing that keeps it going is that so many people believe the lie. But my patience was getting shorter, and my temper was terrible. I was quick to tell people what I thought of them. It, and even and even I was surprised by my bluntness. Bonnie kept telling me, slow down, you're speeding. Somebody's going to give you a ticket. She was almost as restless and crazy as I was. We would check out things happening and make a joke of them. The world seemed to be so big and fixed and we couldn't think of anything to change it. Bonnie encouraged me to stop lying about going to college and go for real. If you're smart enough to fool them, then you're smart enough to play their game. I knew that what she said made sense, but I had hated my last days in high school and had no desire to study anything else. The only other person who stayed on my case and prodded me to go back to school was my friend from Kenya. We had grown to be serious friends and we dug each other much more as friends than as lovers. He was studying economics out on Long Island and we didn't get a chance to see each other much. Sometimes on the weekend, we would hang out together. He was one of the few people I knew who was serious about almost everything he did in life and whose conversation was not just about his small world, but about the whole world. One weekend, we had arranged to hang out. I think we were supposed to go and hear somebody play at Count Basie's club. My apartment looked like some kind of hurricane had hit it, and I was trying to ease out the door without letting him in. Somehow, he managed to get a glimpse inside. No, we aren't going anywhere, he said. How can you live like this? If your house looks like this, I can just imagine what your head looks like. I was embarrassed, but I had to admit he was right. I had everything thrown every which way, clothes flung all over the place. It was a wreck. He suggested that instead of going out, he would help me clean up and get organized. You'll be all right if you just get yourself organized. You can do almost anything you want as long as you organize yourself to do it. I decided he was right. It was time to get my life in some kind of order. It was time to take control. Life was like a bus. 
You could either be a passenger and go along for the ride, or you could be the driver. I didn't have the foggiest idea where I wanted to go, but I knew that I wanted to drive. I decided the first thing I would do was go back to school. I returned home to live with my mother in her new apartment in Flushing, Queens. Culture. I must confess that waltzes do not move me. I have no sympathy for symphonies. I guess I hummed the blues too early and spent too many midnights out wailing to the rain.